This is Folklife Field Notes, exploring living traditions in Virginia through sound recorded by the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. I'm Chris Boros from WMRA with Pat Jarrett, the media specialist for the Folklife Program. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a fiddle and a violin? Yes, I have, actually. <laughs> it's, I ab- absolutely have. Let's talk about that today because I, I've spent some time with Daniel Smith down in Lynchburg and his apprentice, Richard Maxim, at his studio in Alexandria, which is quite a different shop than his mentor's shop in Lynchburg. You can imagine in Lynchburg, Danny's got this kind of wood shop. He's he's a woodworker. He's a first-generation violin maker, and it's kind of expansive. He's got projects in the works. He's got workbenches full of old tools from past teachers, and Richard... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, nothing in Alexandria is that sprawling unless it's part of the U.S. government, you know? So he lives in a tiny little townhouse, and he's got one of the bedrooms that he's converted to a workshop. Nice. And there, he continues the craft of five generations of his family of making violins. So he's a fifth-generation violin maker. Maxim violins go back that far. And so, of course, I asked him the most important question. What's the difference between a fiddle and a violin? Realistically, it's something that comes down more to playing style. The instrument itself is the same. And the joke is that violin has strings and a fiddle has strings. Strings. <laughs> yeah. That's great. It's kind of silly, but Richard is a, kind of a soft-spoken individual. He definitely has reverence for the instruments and for his family's craft. You know, he was brought up in Connecticut and in Iowa and... His family's been doing this for like five generations here in the United States. And so these are violins. These are beautiful instruments. He was playing one of his violins in Danny's shop when we visited. I could share with you that if you'd like. Yeah, let's hear it. Sounds like a violin to me, the way he's playing it. Yeah, it's it sounds exactly like a violin. Yeah. Isn't that interesting though? Like the same instrument and the different techniques of playing it, you get a completely different vibe. Oh sure. For all the fiddlers I've seen and violin players, they it's all about the technique. Yeah. The bow technique, how they draw the bow across the strings, how they let it resonate. It also comes down to intent. Are you playing as a performance? Are you playing as a social gathering? It's all sorts of things, you know? I mean, so many factors go into what makes a sound, and the tools are just one part of it. As far as my history with the violin, it's something that's just always been kind of in in the blood. I'm the fifth generation in the family to be involved with the violin in some way. There's always been somebody in each generation that has played the violin or made them. When I was growing up, my father was... uh, violin music critic. Um, He would review recordings of classical performances and so there would always be music playing in the background. My father also performed regularly and played in orchestras and would play in the community as well. So I'd always hear him playing and he'd play for me when I was really little and when I was three I got my first violin. That was how I got I got started playing, and then for the next 20 years, 
my father taught me and we went through starting with um, a lot of the great uh, classic violin methods. So that was my classical side of playing the violin. Uh, I also was uh, involved in, in folk music or in, in old time uh, to some extent. When, when we lived in Iowa, my parents both participated in a, a group called the Onion Creek Cloggers that um, would put on dances regularly throughout all of Iowa really. I even got to play with them a couple times before we moved, but I you know, grew up always going to the rehearsals because they'd, they'd rehearse once a week, and I'd always come along for that. When I finished college, I decided to apply to the Chicago School of Violin Making. During the summertime after finishing college, before I would have started at uh, Chicago, I thought that it would give me an advantage starting there if I spent some of the time in the summer just trying to get some extra woodworking skill. So I thought, well, you know, if I could just get some basic tool proficiency before I start, that would be great. So I started looking around to see if I could find maybe uh, like a woodworker's club or, or something like that where they could just you know, hand me a few chisels or gouges and I could just make some shavings. In that process, I was looking online one day and I happened to find on the Johnson String Instruments website, there was this violin made by Daniel Smith of Lynchburg. And I was just really taken aback because this, this violin was stunningly beautiful. At that time, phone books were still used and so I was able to look Danny up in the phone book. He was listed and so I gave him a call and I told him that I was looking for some introduction to just using the hand tools. So he said, well why don't you come to my house and we can talk a little bit. He came over. We talked for probably a couple of hours but we just hit it off immediately. At the end of the conversation Danny said, well I think what you ought to do is just come make a violin with me. It felt so perfect. You know, I was so impressed with his work. You know, when I came over to his house, he'd showed me some of his violins and I'd, I'd gotten to play them. So having an offer to work at the bench with him was just a dream come true. I'd, I'd never even expected that something like that would be offered. I think their apprenticeship is really beautiful because Danny is kind of a good old boy down there in Lynchburg. He's uh used to be a firefighter and was a bodybuilder. Wow. While I was at the fire department, I used to do a lot of repair work for players in the area. Then I uh, decided I wanted to build and then I uh, met Russell Burford through uh another fellow named his uncle named Donald Watts. He introduced me to Russell. Uh Donald had built some instruments. He had Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner pulled their bus on his land in Monroe, Virginia, and uh, out of that bus they would uh, go in the surrounding areas and do gigs. Well, anyway, he built a guitar for uh, Dolly, and I saw her on TV playing that guitar one time. So I went to see Russell, and we clicked instantly. So we built about 15 instruments. He got this cancer, you know, and uh, he didn't last long with it. So I carry on the legend of building violins. And I've built 75. I'm working on my second cello. I've repaired hundreds of instruments. 
Uh, it's been um, a passion of mine ever since I got out of the Army, being interested in violin. The more you see, the, the more you learn. And when I started buying violins to work on, you know, they all pretty much looked the same to me, you know. And uh, some of the ones that were cheap, I thought were, the, were expensive and vice versa. But it starts to come together. Uh, you can hold a violin on the other side of the room and I can tell you right now if it's worth looking at again. It just happens, sort of like a child learning to talk. All of a sudden it just happens. And you never stop learning that. The more you see, the more you learn. And Rich has become the teacher and me the student with uh, seeing these famous instruments, celebrated instruments. Some of them I'm impressed with, always impressed with the prices they bring, but not with the workmanship. I'm interested to see Daniel's influence on Richard and to see their relationship really flourish. It's been a pleasure to watch so far. If you do something with your, your hands and your mind together, it's a good antidote for the misery of the world. You, you get lost in what you do. And my wife also has a, a wonderful hobby. She knits these sweaters for the needy, and she, she's done up to 100 a year. Her name is Phyllis. So she'll set and knit. I'll sit and call. <laughs> Do you think there are any classical violin players that would ever say they play the fiddle? It's funny you ask that, because years ago I was in Stanton at Marino's Lunch, and I recognized a violin player from the Stanton Music Festival who came in to the Tuesday Night Jam at Marino's. And I said, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, every time we have the music festival I come in here, it's just such great improvisational music, and I love how it feels. It's such a difference from what I do on stage at the Stanton Music Festival, which is a classical music festival, yeah. very popular one in Stanton. You know, I kind of joked that she walked in with a violin and walked out with a fiddle. That's so great. <laughs> I love it. This is one of those areas I really like to dive into and scratch because it's like there's a deep vein of what makes music, what makes expression, and what tools have to do with it, you know? And I've always thought that tools are a means to an end. You can use a hammer and build all sorts of things. And I feel like instruments are the same way. This is a tool. They have to be well-made. They have to be of a certain quality. But from there, it's open range. You can go wherever you want with it. As soon as I walked in, he was listening to a fiddle record. And it was so fun getting to meet all the other people there that were, uh, you know, in the in the craft ten. Yeah, definitely. Well, it was it was nice that it was set up so that we had meals together. Where it's, just it's just me and him in this, his workshop, and you can hear he's working on some edge work on one of these violins and listening to a fiddle record. He fits in. I mean, that's the thing. At the Richmond Folk Festival this year, we had a luthier's tent, 
where we had all different makers under one tent and Richard and Daniel were both there. And later that day when we were there at uh, Richmond, they all took the stage and they played a song together. They played Lee Highway Blues. So all the sounds kind of meshed together, but um, I got a sample of that if you want to hear that too. Under the Luthiers tent in Richmond, we had KT Van Dyke, Mac Trainum, Dr. Dina Jennings, Lisa Ring and her husband Bill, Michael Brewer, Spencer Strickland, Carly Kiefer and Sophie Burnett, and their mentor, Chris Testerman, who learned from the late, great Albert Hash. And we also have video of what we're listening to right now on the Folklife Field Notes website. That's right. That's right. When you're at Richmond and you have these luthiers together, is there competition? It's not really competition. It's way more camaraderie. These guys like talking about gear, and they like talking about their craft. Yeah. And they like talking... <laughs> these guys like talking about wood quite a bit. <laughs> uh, it's one of their favorite pastimes. <laughs> And actually, Richard and I talked about, he, he was talking about this piece of wood that his, uh, I think his great-grandfather made a bunch of violins out of, if I could play that. This is a violin that my great-great-grandfather, Otis H. Maxim, made in 1916 in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, the back on this one is kind of his uh, characteristic wood. He bought a whole tree, I think great big log of this beautiful old maple and made uh, the majority of his violins with that particular wood. I've seen probably about 20 or so of them and uh, a lot of them have this wood and it's just this beautiful deep curl in it. The one that I played with when I was growing up uh, had the same wood in it and we ended up finding the twin of that violin too. He said 1916? He said 1916. Great-grandfather or great-great? Great-great-grandfather. And so there are three more before that. Great-great-great-great? Uh, or is there one more great? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's it's him. Yeah. His father. Okay. His grandfather. That'd be the great. His great-great-grandfather. Great, great. This is Otis. Okay. And then one more beyond that. Great-great-great. Wow. Wow. And who made the 1916? This is Otis Maxim. So it even goes before that. Yeah. There are ones made before that. It's amazing to think about it. Yeah. But sure enough, I've seen 100-year-old instruments played by amazing musicians, and basically every luthier I've talked to has said that the wood makes all the difference. That really makes an intonation. But the thing is, Richard has all these stories about his own violins. And so he talked about this violin that he is great-great-grandfather made in 1916 that he played as a kid. And this violin, his father played, his grandfather played. This is one of these well-loved instruments that was taken on trips, that was played out. It's been broken and repaired a bunch of times. It has miles on it, but he still loves it, right? And he takes care of it. But the interesting thing is, you remember how he said there's a twin to this one? Yeah. Well, he said... Recently, that they found his father found the twin. So I, I had that violin and played it for years, 
We had heard that my great-great-grandfather often made violins in pairs, but we'd never come across a second violin you know, made at the same time. And then a friend of the family got in touch and said that he'd come across a listing for a Maxim violin. It belonged to uh, somebody that lived in an Amish community, and it, it had been there, I think, maybe most of its life. We bought it sight unseen, just knowing what it was, but we didn't know what it was going to be exactly or when it was made or anything. And then we got it and opened it and looked at the label, and it was the same year as that other violin. It was the twin, same wood and everything, but that one was pristine. Of all the Maxim violins, that one was probably the most pristine, so you could see just what it looked like when it came off of the workbench. We always kept the two in a double case. It was nice to reunite the twins, have them back together again. Wow, what a find. Yeah, Richard has stories about these violins. There was one violin that was found in a home renovation. Mm. They removed a panel on a basement <laughs> wall, wow. and there's a violin case back there. I mean, it, it's wild, and it's amazing that there's all this history just in one family. Right. And what a blessing to be able to make these instruments and have such a legacy fully intact. It must be special for him to hold this violin that his great, great grandfather made. And here it is. He's still holding it. It's so cool. And yeah. he's, he's also, you know, he's got a photo of, of his, of his great, great grandfather on his wall. That's, you know, one of those old timey portraits. And it, it, you know, there's reverence for the family legacy here. I can't even imagine. I mean, I, for example, today, this is a shirt that I got out of my grandfather's closet. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this is an, this is like touching time when I'm wearing this and I wear it all the time and I'm wearing it out. It's not an heirloom, but I can't imagine holding something that my grandfather made by my great, great grandfather made by hand. And it still sounds so good too. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's beautiful. It's interesting to me that they have a story for each one. These really aren't just, instruments to to Richard. These are personal things that he has made and he's put his love into. To name them, I mean, that just goes to show you how much he puts into this. Here's the thing too, Chris. I don't think Richard is alone in this. Mm. And furthermore, violins are made in all types of places and, and all types of situations. And currently, Richard is working with some violin makers in the Ukraine who are still making instruments even though wow. their shops are being threatened by shelling. Whew. He's doing his best to sell these violins and to get them out in the world because it's really tricky to get violins out of a war zone. Mm. He talks about this. I got an email from this violin maker mm -hmm. in Ukraine. So there's a guy that plays in the opera here, mm -hmm. and he is Ukrainian himself. And he sells violins made by this family. And so I, I advertise on the website that I had one of them, but I got to him. And this other guy who saw that and got in touch with me, he sent me a violin. And I was just blown away by it when I got it. I didn't really know who he was, so it was sort of like, as I got to talk with him a little bit more, I was really impressed. And, um, I sold the first one to a friend of mine. Also, the, uh, the war in Ukraine started as he was trying to finish that violin, he'd gotten about three quarters of the way through 
and he had to he had to move and everything, and then they started shelling by his house. The family had to get out just to be safe. He finally got that violin done and sent it to me. That one it sold in a day. I'm doing everything I can to try and promote him as a maker because I think he does fantastic work. It shows the heart and the camaraderie of this community of makers that in the worst of times, not only are they still making, but they're still finding fellowship and resources within this community. I think it's really amazing that Richard is helping out and bringing attention to these makers and trying to boost them up in their time of need. So Richard is selling these violins from Ukraine, a completely different violin maker. He's selling them for him? Yeah, he is. This is like Martin Guitar selling a tailor. <laughs> it goes to show you that this really is a community of people. I was going to say, I think, it, and also extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And, you know, at some point, the community is stronger if there's representation and if a violin maker can continue to make work even in a war zone. Pretty amazing. Andrish Taras makes these violins, and Richard is doing all he can to promote him. The stories of these violins, I think it might affect me more than the family connection. The Maxim generational story is so beautiful, um, and that he's learning from Daniel Smith, who's an accomplished woodworker and who's an accomplished maker, also brings me joy. But this story from the Ukraine of these violins just... Um, it really makes me think. I can't imagine trying to do my job while shells are dropping outside. Yeah. Especially a job like making violins, because you don't think, like, in a war zone, that would even be, still be happening. Right. It's one of those things, you know, like, is this actually necessary? Uh, are these instruments necessary? And I think resoundingly, yes, yes, they are. absolutely. Because what else is there if not the human expression mm. and the ability to communicate through music and communicate with your communities. It has to continue no matter what's going on. The music's got to keep going, Pat. Humans are stubborn like that, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> the Maxim violin liner is in good hands with Richard, and I'm really excited to see what he and Danny do together in their apprenticeship with the Folklife program. And they really work well together. 